we are in the second part of a four-part series looking at a very important sermon that Jesus gave concerning the end times. Now, if you weren't with us last Sunday, in way of recap, just a few things that you need to keep in mind that set the stage for what we'll be looking at this morning. Chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark opens, it is Jesus' week of passion. If you're unfamiliar with that, it is his last week in his earthly ministry. The week began on Sunday with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the people were waving palm branches, sang out, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king, as Jesus rode into the city on a donkey, Palm Sunday. Things would reach a bit of a sour note later in the week when Jesus was illegally arrested, unjustly tried, and brutally executed, crucified for the sins of humanity. The following Sunday, just a week from his triumphal entry, things would reach back as to a high note as Jesus rose from the dead, that being Resurrection Sunday. We are presently in Tuesday for context. So it's the Tuesday of Jesus' week of passion. The night is quickly arriving. Jesus is leaving the temple. He's making his way to a suburb known as Bethany. It's where he was staying for the week, more than likely with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus for context. Jesus, they're leaving the temple. They're going down the Kidron Valley and up the mountain next to Mount Moriah, that being the Mount of Olives. As they're making their way uh, up the Mount of Olives, they're looking back at, as to Jerusalem and the temple and the disciples begin to brag. They took a lot of pride in the temple. It was an awesome structure, a glorious structure. Josephus says the amount of gold and white marble that laid uh, on the temple itself was so brilliant in the new day sun that it could be seen in upwards of 10 to 15 miles away. No doubt as they're making their way out of the city, the sun is setting. The disciples are just gloating about how awesome the temple was, how incredible uh, the, the structure itself ha had been developed. It was a source of pride. And yet, in response to their gloating, Jesus kind of bursts their bubble. He prophesies concerning Herod's temple, saying, do you see these great buildings? Obviously, they, they were looking at them. But then Jesus says, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And we know that Jesus is speaking prophetically and literally because in 70 AD, Titus Vespasian would indeed sack Jerusalem. Through a series of events, the temple would be set ablaze, the gold would melt down between the stones, and in order to recover the gold, Titus ordered the soldiers to remove every single stone to retrieve the valuable possession, the material, the gold, not one stone was left upon another. Jesus speaking some 40 years before this would take place. Now, in reaction to Jesus' prophecy here, the disciples ask two pressing questions that kind of set the stage for the sermon. One of the questions we find contained in Mark's account, the other question we find contained in Matthew's account of the same events. Mark chapter 13, verse 3, we have the first question the disciples ask concerning Jesus' prophecy, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things will be fulfilled. No doubt they didn't doubt Jesus' prophecy. They had been with Jesus long enough to know that what he had said would happen would indeed occur. But then they ask a second question, not in Mark's account, but, but mentioned in Matthew 24, verse 3. 
they asked, what will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? Now their question desired here to know more than just about the destruction of the temple. As a matter of fact, Jesus really doesn't address the first question at all in the sermon itself, instead choosing to focus on their greater concern, the sign of his coming in relation to the end of the age. This response to this particular question sets the backdrop for the sermon we know as the Olivet Discourse. And as we noted last Sunday, there are two ways that you can view or interpret this particular sermon. First, preterists believe that the events of the Olivet Discourse found their fulfillment. They occurred in the year 70 AD. Their logic goes as follows. If the Olivet Discourse is a prophetical response to the disciples' question about the future destruction of the temple, then isn't it then only logical to conclude the prophecy throughout the sermon itself found a fulfillment when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD? And as we noted last Sunday, there's two fundamental problems with this assertion. First, it's impossible to definitively connect the prophetic events that Jesus describes in this sermon with the historical events we know to have occurred in 70 AD. Josephus, a first century historian, Jewish historian, writes extensively from an eyewitness perspective of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the events Jesus describes in this sermon and the events that occurred there as recorded by an eyewitness don't correlate, they don't connect. Secondly, it's inappropriate to simply assume that Jesus' sermon intended to address both of the disciples' questions. If your kid comes up with two, like, two questions to you, one, um, you know, when is snack time? And the other is, uh, I threw my baby brother out the window, will he be okay? You're going to skip the first question entirely because snack time in context to baby brother going out window uh, is, is irrelevant to the point. You see what I'm saying? So though two questions are asked, the destruction of the temple really pales in comparison to the much larger issue at hand, that being Jesus's second coming and the end of the age. And thus the sermon intends to address the second because it's more pressing instead of the first. So I don't exactly adhere to a preterist perspective of the Olivet Discourse and instead hold to a second position, which we would ascribe as a pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist approach. Big words, I exhort you to refer to last week's study for more context. In summary, this position believes that the Olivet Discourse would be fulfilled not in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but instead in five yet future events the rapture of the church, the abomination of desolation, which is when the Antichrist enters the temple and sets himself up to be God. Daniel wrote about it extensively. The great tribulation, also known as Daniel's 70th week, seven years of tribulation, Jesus' second coming, and the millennial reign. Now, the biggest challenge to this position is as follows, in fairness. If the Olivet Discourse, as some preterists would assume, finds its ultimate fulfillment, let's say in the end time scenario, according to this particular position, then the preterists would ask, shouldn't we then see or conclude 
that since Jesus taught that the church would go through the tribulation, that the church would go through the tribulation, that we should substitute the church for Israel. If Jesus is speaking to the disciples, the disciples will make up the church. He's speaking of these particular events. Then how can you say that we will be raptured before these things occur? Now, once again, there's three problems with this assertion. I'm flying through some information because we covered it all extensively last Sunday. But just in case you weren't with us, the three problems with that position, that the church would go through the tribulation because Jesus is giving the sermon to those that would make up the church, is that the context, keep in mind, for the disciples' question represented a concern for what? The church? No, the church isn't even a concept yet. Their concern is over Israel and the future of their temple. Secondly, the reason why I think you, you have to go against that particular assertion is that you, you also can't ignore all of the other biblical passages that clearly indicate the rapture of the church would occur before a tribulational period would, would ensue. And then thirdly, and this is important for our purposes this morning, the Olivet Discourse does something interesting with another set of prophecy. So in the book of Revelation, you have John the Apostle John, who happened to be present for this particular sermon, later in life, probably at the age of 90, being arrested, uh, he was tried in, in the sense that he was, there was an attempt, an execution attempt. They tried to boil him in oil. He didn't boil. Supernatural miracle occurred. And he was exiled to the island of Patmos, kind of like a first century Alcatraz, intending for him to live out his days. And it's there that Revelation chapter 1 opens with John receiving a revelation of Jesus Christ of yet future events. Now, what's, what's important is that John receives this revelation somewhere between 90 and 100 AD, much later than the events of 70 AD which presents a problem if you're looking at the events of this sermon being fulfilled in 70 AD, but then John writes and describes kind of the same subject matter still yet occurring in the future, but writing after the destruction of the temple. You follow how that's kind of a misconception. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, uh, Jesus gives John the outline of the book. He says, write the things which, which you have seen. And that's chapter one, this, this heavenly glorified uh, presentation of Jesus and the events that led him to the island of Patmos. Then write the things which are. Chapters two and three record the events of the church age. Seven letters to the church, Jesus's message to the church, beginning at Pentecost and continuing all the way up through today. But then Jesus tells John to write the things which will come after these things. Chapter four, verse one opens after these things. After what things? After the church age reaches a conclusion, reaches its fulfillment, thus write the things which will come after. And thus beginning with chapter four, continuing on through chapter 22, we have yet future events. Now, why that's important for this particular section of scripture is that as we continue through the Olivet Discourse. You will note and we will illustrate how as Jesus is describing prophetically yet future events based off the question, the sign of your coming and the end of the age, you will note 
that Jesus's outline of yet future events will find itself working succinctly and chronologically with a set of judgments we find recorded in Revelation chapter six, these being the seal judgments. And so as we work through uh, this section of the Olivet Discourse, it will be helpful for you to reference to chapter six. So that's why we kind of encourage you, put a finger here, put a thumb in Revelation six. We'll go back and forth. Verse five, chapter 13, let's just dive into it. So Jesus answering them, began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. For what? For his coming, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These, Jesus says, are the beginnings of sorrows. Now, the first thing we notice from the text is that Jesus, he warns of a great deceiver. Look at it again. He says to them, take heed. Be aware, be cautious that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying I am he and they will deceive sadly many. Now for starters, Jesus warns of a deceit by those who will quote, come in his name. Now biblically, we refer to these people as antichrists. Keep in mind, an antichrist is not the opposite of Christ. The word anti in the Greek is replacement. It's a substitute Christ. An antichrist is not someone who is in opposition of Christ, but someone seeking to take the place, the rightful place of Christ. So he's a replacement Christ, an alternative Christ. And we find all throughout scripture, a continuation of Jesus's warning to be on the lookout of those who would come in his name, seeking to deceive. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. You don't have to turn there. We'll put it on the screens. John says, who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is antichrist, who denies the Father and Son. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3. John says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. And why should we test? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ, or Jesus as the Christ, has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is what's important. John says, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming. Heard from whom? From Jesus, and is now already in the world. 2 John verse 7, one more reference. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Christ. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now with this in mind, it's important to note that Jesus, in referencing this deceiver, is speaking of two forms of deceit. Obviously, Jesus is speaking and John speaks of a general deceit. Please understand, there are always people 
and systems of thought, a spirit of replacement Christology, or those who would like to replace the preeminence that Jesus should have in our lives. They're not as overt as we think of the Antichrist. Some world political leader with 666, you know. But there's a spirit that's wanting you to substitute Christ for something else. I can think of all, even forms of Christianity, accepted Christianity, that still in subtle ways replace Christ. Thus that Jesus's work on the cross might be sufficient to save, but might not be sufficient to perfect. Yes, Jesus's blood justifies, but it doesn't sanctify. Instead of just abiding in the blood of Jesus and the cross and his sacrifice and God's grace, instead, well, you need to work for your improvement. You need to work for God's favor. That within the church even, there's a substitute of Christ's sufficiency in the flesh. And we find this warning that we should be careful. Deceivers will come. And if anyone preaches anything other than Christ and his total sufficiency is of this spirit of antichrist, replacement Christ. But it's also clear, and we should note, that Jesus is speaking and John referencing to more than just a general deceit. But instead, Jesus seems to be alluding to a specific deceiver. Once again, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John says, little children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Now, that's interesting. He's already referenced the spirit of Antichrist, but now he seems to be implying a specific Antichrist. Even now that many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. John, who is present for this sermon, affirms that many Antichrists would come, but he also warns of a specific person. The Antichrist is coming by which we will know his arrival, that it is the last hour. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul gives us another important bit of information concerning this specific Antichrist. So, so I hope you're following. There is a spirit of Antichrist, lots of little Antichrist, but there is an Antichrist that's coming, that is yet to appear, that is yet to arrive. And the Apostle Paul tells us what's restraining his arrival. Paul says, let no one deceive you by any means for that day. Speaking of the day of the Lord will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Specific deceiver. He has many titles in scripture. Antichrist, son of perdition. Though there has always been the spirit of Antichrist at work in the world, in the last hour, according to context, there will rise an ultimate manifestation of this deceit. When a singular man rises up and claims to be a savior, a Messiah, a Christ. Though generally speaking, I also believe Jesus is affirming that in the end times, there will rise a counterchrist who will not just dominate the world, but in whom the Jewish people will embrace as their Messiah. Even Orthodox Jews today, 
there is an anticipation of a global leader they will view as a Messiah. Orthodox Jews, they hold to 13 principles of faith. Number 12 states this. I'll read it for you. I believe with full faith in the coming of the Messiah. And even though he tarries with all that, I await his arrival every single day. So even within Jewish orthodoxy, Jewish culture, there is an anticipation of a future Messiah because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and thus they look to Old Testament scripture. They're still waiting for its fulfillment. Now let's correlate this to the revelation given to John. Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, we find the first seal judgment. Note, behold, John seeing, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out to conquer. Now we see here this rise of a conqueror. And there's a lot of debate in regards to who the man on the white horse happens to be. I'm of the opinion, because Jesus provides more context in the Olivet Discourse, that he who rides this, this particular horse is indeed the Antichrist. And he will rise to power. He who sat had a bow, a crown, authority was given to him. He went out to conquer. Now, many scholars believe that a great future conflict will arise as recorded in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, of which the prophet records an event where Gog and Magog, due north of Jerusalem, with a ten-nation coalition, come down to attack and destroy Israel. Interesting that Gog and Magog, Magog itself being an early derivative of Moscow, seems to imply that at some point, the Russians, with a coalition of other Arab nations, will come down and attack Israel. Now, we're not given what provoked the particular incursion. We don't know what precipitated this particular conflict, other than the fact that according to Ezekiel's prophecy, the situation will be so bleak, Israel will be so overmatched, that they've all but given up hope when there is a supernatural intervention brought about by God. Once again, we don't know the particulars, although it's interesting to note, and, and I'm not one of these people that tries to take all present world events and tie them in to, uh, to prophecy, but it's significant that who is now filling a void left by America in Middle Eastern affairs, specifically now setting up military bases in Syria, we have now the Russians aligning themselves now with Syria and also Iran, nations involved in this particular coalition. And so it would appear that as a result of a supernatural work of God by which Israel is preserved and protected, these other nations are destroyed, that a leader rises to power to sign a covenant, a peace treaty, promising to be, bring peace to the world, that being the Antichrist the Jews will be deceived. And how will they be deceived? How will the world be deceived by this antichrist? Joel Rosenberg, who writes extensively about these particular events, he says, he says, there are people in our world today, and unfortunately, in our political system, that do not believe in evil. They have the modern Western secular mindset. They don't believe evil exists. They are exactly the ones who are in danger of getting blindsided 
by evil because they're not prepared for it. And so there's a man that will come who will promise peace. He, he will promise uh, stability. And yet, he's an antichrist, according to Jesus, promising things he can never fulfill. Jesus also noted that following this great deceiver, there will be a great war. Jesus says, but when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And this seems to be an allusion to global conflict before we get to the global conflict, that being the battle of Armageddon itself. If you look, verse 4 of chapter 6, at the second seal judgment, John says that another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, that people should kill one another. And there was given him a great sword. War. War is nothing new to the landscape of human history. I mean, beginning when Jesus was presenting this particular sermon, when John gives this revelation, I mean, every century to follow, we've had some form of war, some form of conflict. Will Durant, a well-respected historian, said war is the one constant of history and has not diminished with civilization nor democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have seen no war. War is a staple to a fallen globe. And yet, according to our text, this future war, this future conflict will be unique. It will be unlike anything that has ever come before it. Now, we've had global conflict, World War I, World War II. And yet, with the invention of thermonuclear weapons, it's been said that we are only one bomb away from complete and utter worldwide destruction. In doing a little research for this morning's message, do you know, and this is mind-blowing, that one American Trident submarine carries enough firepower, raw firepower, that it alone eclipses the entirety of the firepower used in all of World War II. Because of nuclear weapons, one Trident submarine packs more TNT than the entirety of World War II. Global conflict, when the world is nuclearly armed, is not something to be desired. The world's top four military spenders, according to... to 2013. Let me give them for you, just so you understand how much money we spend on prepping for global conflict. The USA spends more than anyone else, $682 billion, or 4.4% of our GDP. Realize the United States spends 39% of all that the world spends when it comes to arming ourselves. China, spends $166 billion or 2.4% of GDP. That's probably gone up recently. That's 9.5% of the world total. Russia, $90.7 billion, 4.4% of their GDP, 5.2% of the world total. The UK, that little island, 
$60.8 billion they spend, or 2.5% of their GDP, 3.5% of the world total. 15 countries with the highest spending account for over 81% of the military spending of the world. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, and my, that is a mouthful, on military expenditures, they, they say that world military expenditures are estimated, so this is what we spend as a world on military expenditures, estimated at $1.765 trillion, or 2.5% of the world GDP. We spend $249 a year per person on military spending as compared to the approximately $4 per person that we spend on UN peacekeeping efforts. So you tell me where we're headed. If, if, if money speaks, the political rulers, the, the money makers, the policy uh, you know, gurus, we're moving towards war. James Madison, he said in 1795, of all of the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it compromises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies. From these proceed debt and taxes, known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few, which leads to the third thing we should note from the Olivet Discourse, and that's that Jesus continues by saying that, okay, we have this great deceiver that follows this great war that produces, well, we're told earthquakes in various places, famines, and troubles. According to Luke chapter 21, another record of the Olivet Discourse, we have added pestilence. Look at the third seal judgment, Revelation 6, 5, and 6. Behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So following this global conflict, three things follow. And it shouldn't be a shock. First, inflation. Imagine the effects of global inflation brought about by global war where our money, the value of our currency, becomes nullified. That it's hard to buy and sell. Yes, we would need the leadership of a politician who could maybe reintroduce a new economic system, one based upon a particular mark. We also see following inflation that there's famine in 2012, Dr. Ira Hefland presented a keynote at the 12th World Summit of Nobel Laureates in Chicago on findings of a report he called, quote, nuclear famine, a billion people at risk, global impacts of limited nuclear war on agriculture, food supplies, and human nutrition. So he wanted to see nuclear war, what does that do to your food supply? His report outlines the devastation that a decade-long worldwide famine would come even following a small-scale nuclear event. The ruining of crops and the food, he estimates that from a small nuclear conflict, that the loss of life would be approximately one billion people globally just from the famine alone. 
And then you have the pestilence. In 1343, the bubonic plague swept across most of Europe. Over the next eight years, two-thirds of the population of Europe was afflicted with the plague with one half of those dying. The death toll, and it can be debated, some estimate to be around 25 million people, quite a lot, concerning the global population of the day. In 1918, the influenza pandemic, which was the first H1N1 virus, affected over 500 million people. It's estimated that somewhere between 50 and 100 million people died as a result of this particular flu uh, vein. That was 3 to 5% of the, of the world population. Harvard scientists have recently projected that the next N1, uh, H1N1 flu influenza a pandemic could kill an estimated 250 million people. Scientists warn, quote, with the rise in disinfection, Disease can spread in a localized environment and evolve to cause greater problems. With travel from the localized area, the pathogen can then move worldwide. This fact is particularly important when one thinks that almost 100 years ago, when we had the 1918 pandemic, it could take a month to circulate across the globe. Months. Today, this can be accomplished in a day. Moreover, with more individuals traveling than ever before, some 1.4 billion air travelers per year, the opportunity for a pandemic strain to spread is greater than it's ever been. And so Jesus describes the arrival of an antichrist that follows uh, this war that produces an inflation, that produces pestilence, that produces famine. Jesus is saying that this tribulation that leads up to his coming will be unlike anything the world has ever seen. And we find it described in these seal judgments. Look at the fourth seal judgment, Revelation 6, 8, which seems to explain or at least describe the cumulative effect of all of these things. Behold, John says, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death. That's not a horse you want to put your money on the track that was called death. And Hades followed him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So the summary of the war, killed with the sword, with the hunger, death, I don't even want to kind of speculate the beasts of the earth, what that implies. But think about it. Today, the ramification of, according to this particular prophecy, one-fourth, 25% of the world's population dying. If you say that our, wor our world has 7 billion people, do you realize that the death toll would then be 1.7 billion people? Like, let me, let me try to like, put that in context. If you take North, Central, South America, and you tag on the Caribbean, you have 942 million people. Then if you take northern, western, eastern, and southern Europe, so you add on another 740 million people, you get a grand total of 1.68 billion people, which still doesn't reach the 1.7 billion. When we talk about a quarter of the Earth's population dying, we're talking about something massive, something cataclysmic, something that has not happened before and would be impossible to place 
into the year 70 AD. What's even more incredible is that Jesus' description of these events and the sealed judgments of Revelation, we're told that this is just the beginning. Like, this is the warm-up act to this great tribulation. The disciples originally asked for a sign, a distinguishing event. And Jesus continues by saying that everything he's just mentioned are the beginnings of sorrows. This phrase, beginnings of sorrows, it's an interesting phrase because in context, uh, it implies or describes that of labor pains. That's what Jesus is trying to, to get across. The world is pregnant. These things are happening. You're wanting to know when the birth is going to occur. His coming. The end of the age. These are the early contractions. Yes, the pregnancy is coming to an end. Yes, the time is short. Yes, the baby is on the way. But this is the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of feeling these things. Jesus' point is that the progression towards the end of the age, it will follow this slow progression of labor pains. Things begin slow. They speed up. They come back down. They speed up again. They increase in intensity and frequency as they get to the ultimate climax, the end of the event. It's hard, and then there's a reprieve. It's hard, and then there's a reprieve. It's harder, and then there's a reprieve. And with each contraction, things are more intense. And as you read through the book of Revelation, you see this that following these particular events, there's a lull, there's a period, and then it intensifies again, and then it comes back down, and it intensifies again. Verse 9, Jesus says, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must be first preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but that of the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to the death and father his child. Children will rise up against parent and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, it's easy to see how these words in the Olivet Discourse intend and have provided incredible encouragement to generations beginning in 70 AD and continuing all, all the way down to our present age to those who have experienced and faced persecution. No doubt it was applicable to that generation as applicable as it is to this generation. For you can make the case that today more Christians are persecuted for the name of Jesus than at any other time in human history. Just turn on the news. Even this past week, in this horrible tragedy that took place in Oregon, the claims, at least the rumors, that as part of his killing spree, he targeted Christians. 
And yet we find Jesus' word of exhortation, promising that these things will happen, promising that these things are in our destiny, are in our future, but saying, don't worry. You have the Holy Spirit. Don't worry what you'll say. The Spirit will give you the right words. And we've seen, just reference Fox's Book of Martyrs time and time and time again, when Christians have faced brutal death. And yet in those moments, God's grace proves sufficient glorious witnesses of men and women experiencing incredible hardship. And yet, in context, I believe that Jesus is speaking to yet a still future group of believers. Now you might say, well, wait a second. If we're dealing with in times events and Jesus is referencing believers, then can't you say that the church would go through the tribulation? I don't think so. Look at the fifth seal judgment in Revelation 6. It's it's referred to as the cry of the martyrs. Now note, though the church has been removed from the earth, that's my position, raptured before these things happening, before they happen, and God's main focus is on the children of Israel. In multiple places, we're told that God's work of redemption is still active. Though the times of the Gentiles, the church age, has come to a completion, it doesn't mean that God's work of salvation also ceases. During the Great Tribulation, there is a revival that takes place. Revelation chapter 7. We're told that God ordains and seals 145 Jewish males from the 12 tribes of Israel and commissions them and protects them to to be evangelists during Great Tribulation, specifically to minister to the nation of Israel. Revelation chapter 11, during the first three and a half years of this seven-year period, there will be two witnesses who will evangelize from Jerusalem the world. There will be a remnant, a representative. No doubt when people see the rapture of the church occur, that they're going to open up their Bibles and say, I've made a tragic mistake. And yet, their future is not sealed. That they can still come to Christ. It would appear that during tribulation, people all over the world will be coming to a saving faith. And this scripture seems to tell us, and Jesus seems to affirm, that this revival that will happen after the rapture, once tribulation begins, will be met with a persecution unlike anything the world has ever seen. Under the authority of the Antichrist, everyone will be forced, according to the book of Revelation, to make a decision either to worship him as God and show allegiance by taking his mark, the mark of the beast, or refuse and face immediate execution. During this period of trial and trouble and tribulation, judgment, there will be a religious climate much different than ours today. For there will be no room for any type of ambivalence. You know, in our first study, we mentioned how knowing the way things end should provide a clarity for the things that should be important today. That knowing the end of the story, knowing what's coming, should provide us motivation and clarity for, for what we should be doing in the here and the now. 
But this morning, I think our exhortation is a little different. In today's climate, as we know, it's completely permissible, even celebrated, to choose religious neutrality. Man, that, this, that, that religion, that's for you. I don't need that. But please understand something. In the end, it will not be this way. And it won't be Christianity putting the line of demarcation. It will be the world system itself. You know, all religious systems, you know, beliefs concerning supernatural controlling power, all religious systems have as a basis the idea of exclusivity. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Muhammad made it very clear that Allah is God and he's his prophet. Every religion has an, a form of exclusivity, their way or the highway. And though our secular world claims to have evolved beyond absolutes, a move away from exclusivity, it won't always be that way. Because according to our text, there will come a day when even the world system itself will draw a line and say, you join us or you die. Every religious system, at some point or another, forces a human being to choose. Playing the line, one foot here, one foot there, it's not a position that you can maintain. It's not a position that will last. And I want to conclude with this thought. Because people, you, you will have to make a decision for Jesus or not. You will have to make a decision. And you know today, the decision you have to make is simple. Low risk, high reward, honestly. Forsake the world and live for Jesus. I mean, that's, that's really what we're putting on the table. Have you had enough of the world? A taste of Jesus, something that will satisfy, that'll quench your thirst. And if we're wrong, okay. Like low risk, high reward, heaven, right? But understand in the end that there's a day coming and it might even come before tribulation. When this will be the decision, the decision will no longer be, will I forsake the world and live my life for Jesus, but instead, will I forsake the world and lay down my life for Jesus? Because during this period, as described in the Olivet Discourse and later in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, it's clear that it won't just be rejecting the world to live for Jesus. The decision will be rejecting the world to die for Jesus. There might be some of you that take this approach, and it's not uncommon. You know what, Zach? I'm almost there. Like, I'm right there on the fence. And you know, brother, I'm just going to wait for the rapture. Because, you know, when I come to church and, uh, and you all aren't there, um, when, like, 
people disappear, then I'll be like, all right, I guess they were right, and I'll follow Jesus. Like, that'll be the time. It's hard to deny that, right? But here's the deal. In that moment, the stakes just changed. The environment just changed. If you resist living for him today, what makes you think you'll be willing to die for him tomorrow? I'm not saying living for Jesus is easy today. It's not. But at least we can meet in the open. And we have the freedom, at least for still today, to follow Jesus. And we can keep our jobs, some of us. But there's going to come a day that that line, it's permanent. And the world will force you to make a decision. Why not make the decision this morning? Is Jesus not worthy? 